You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. We're looking at this book in the mornings, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and we're on chapter 4. And I want to read from the beginning, but we're going to look especially at verses 13 to 15. It's on page 1160 in the uh, church Bible. If you don't have a Bible, then you can get one from Jared at the door if you'd like one. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, page 1160 from the beginning. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And then these words, it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Um, Adeline, you're going to have to move this on because I don't have the the wee button. So the words should come up there anyway. Um, Let me just say, isn't it amazing that uh, we prayed for Asia, and I, I, I use the Operation World stuff, and I mean, those of you who are from Asia, you're going to say, yeah, we know this. You're just a tiny wee country, Scotland, but uh, there's over four billion people in Asia. In China alone, I mean, I come from the Highlands. I think Dundee's a big city. Uh, in China alone, there are 20 cities that have a bigger population than the whole of Scotland. Uh, it is incredible. And how does the gospel reach Asia? And how uh, it's incredible how many people are becoming Christians there, and we should be encouraged by that. There is a small church up in Easter Ross, uh, Nig. Uh, it's closed, but you can still go in. There's a Pictish stone inside it, and it's famous for that. But for me, it's even more famous because 
at the end of the 18th century, there was a man called John Ross, a minister of that church, and he went out to Korea as a missionary, and he was killed. And through his death, millions of people became Christians, so that Korea is probably now the most Christian nation uh, in the world. It really uh, is extraordinary how God works, and he's continuing to work. Uh, Those of you who know our friend Adam, I'm not allowed to use his proper name, um, and I'm not allowed to say where he works, except to say it's a Muslim-majority country which he is from. Uh, Adam is actually a free church minister. Uh, He was accepted by the free church. He's spoken here before. Well, I just heard yesterday that he's coming back. He will be back with us in May. And is it extraordinary how God has used Adam to plant hundreds of churches amongst Muslim people? It's not a work that you can publicize and and, and boast about because it is uh, because of the level of persecution that is involved for many Christians. But God is, is at work throughout Asia, and that is wonderful. But in uh, our culture, sometimes I think people despair. I wonder if you think, if you're a Christian, if you think there are people who are unreachable, or if you're not a Christian, if you think, well, you'll never get me, uh, you're pretty immune or hardened to it. There used to be an advert for, I think it was Heineken, or was it Carlsberg, the beer that reaches uh, parts that other beers don't reach. Well, I want to suggest to you, um, not a commendation for beer, but I want to suggest to you that the gospel reaches parts that, that other philosophies and religions just do not reach. And I want us to think about how we present the gospel. Paul talks here about grace reaching people, that this grace that reaches more and more people. How does God's grace reach people? And I want to encourage those of us who are Christians not to despair at what appears to be decline and a lack of fruit, but rather to come and to proclaim all the more the good news of Jesus Christ. In verse 13, Paul says to the Corinthians, all the, there was a lot of trouble in that church. He says, we believe, therefore we speak. That's why we speak. Now, the situation in our country is incredibly serious. Uh, This week on Tuesday, the Church of Scotland officially and the Humanist Society will go to the Scottish Parliament and ask them uh, to remove Christian worship from our state education system and replace it with a time for reflection. Why don't we agree with that? For me, I think it's one of the most appalling things I've heard in a long time. Time for reflection that's inclusive of everyone will end up, of course, being exclusive of those who believe the Bible. And our whole education system, which was designed around Christianity, is deteriorating in many ways. Well, people say you can't just teach people the Bible and Jesus and so on. That's, they have to make up their own mind. Well, yes, people do have to make up their own mind, but they have to be taught in order to be able to make up their own mind. What if God has spoken? How do we communicate that? You will not find in this church as putting forward a point of view which says, well, on the one hand there's this, and the other hand there's that, and the other hand there's that. Just you reflect about it, and you make up your own mind. You invent your own religion. You invent your own God. 
It's all about your personal spirituality. It's not. It is about the good news of Jesus Christ, as we'll see as we look at this passage. Why don't we give up? Why don't we just pack it all in? I think that there are some Christians who have done that. And I suspect that there are some of you here who in your own hearts and in your own minds, you believe the gospel, you believed it worked in another century, you believe it works in China, but you struggle to believe that the gospel will work in your district, in your street, in your city, in your school, in your university, in your office, in your workplace, amongst your family. It's somehow easier to believe that God worked in the past and that he works in other places, but our situation, we find that quite hard. And I do think that an awful lot of Christians have been battered and bruised, and whilst they love the Lord, have lost sight of the power of the gospel and have lost confidence in the gospel. Well, Paul faced that situation. He faced a situation where the church was disintegrating and where there was a great deal of difficulty and trouble and personal criticism of his own ministry. And how does he answer it? He says, the bit before we are jars of clay, that we are very, very weak, that we are not strong. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. But he now goes on to say, it is written, I believe, therefore I speak with that same spirit of faith we also believe, and therefore we speak. Well, let's look at where he gets that from. It's Psalm 116, and let's just turn to that psalm, and I'll read from verse 7. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay I said, all men are liars. The psalmist was a man under enormous pressure. He felt and experienced death. He was ill and persecuted. He was let down by other human beings. He was exhausted, worn out, confused, and on the point of giving up. But in this psalm, he comes to the altar of God and he pours out a sacrifice to God and he gives thanks to God. Why did he keep on going? Because he believed. That's the real spirit of faith that Paul speaks about here. He says, with that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. And I do believe that that refers to the Holy Spirit granting faith. It's not just a blind belief. It is the Holy Spirit who enables us to see and the Holy Spirit who enables us to believe. The Holy Spirit who gives us the gift of God, that is faith. That's where our Christianity is really put to the test. I believed, therefore I spoke. Sometimes I get asked, why do you keep going? Why do you keep doing it? Why do you keep speaking and writing and trying to persuade people? Do you think you can? And the answer is no, no, I I, I can't. But I believe absolutely that the gospel is true And I believe that Jesus rose from the dead 
And I believe that that good news needs to be told to everyone and that it is grace that reaches many, many people. And I think one of the most important things you could possibly ever do is pray a very simple prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Be absolutely honest with yourself. I'm not talking about whether you believe the facts of the gospel. That's a different matter almost. People will have doubts and fears and questions about all of that. I'm talking about whether you believe sufficient to speak. Because it's true. Because you know that your Redeemer lives. It is important for us to say, Lord, grant me the spirit of faith. Now, the question then arises, faith in what? He says, I I believed, uh, we believe, therefore we speak. Because, verse 14, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us, us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. And here, Paul is doing something, again, uh, quite remarkable. He's referring back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, first letter to the Corinthians, and he's referring back to the resurrection. Because the Corinthian church was plagued by people who were coming and saying, there is no resurrection of the dead, or Jesus was already raised. It's a spiritual raising. It's not a physical resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, just flick back a few pages, this is what he says. Brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you've taken your stand. Straight away, there's the gospel. You received it, you took your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. How is it possible to believe in vain? I'll tell you how it's possible. It's possible to have the nominal Christianity that many people have in Scotland, which says, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Bible. But they're not holding fast to the word of the gospel. That belief is in vain. It's not real trust and belief in Jesus Christ. He goes on, verse 3 of chapter 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Verse 12, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter, but you should. It's wonderful. And Paul is writing several years later 
to the Corinthians, and he's summarizing this in one verse. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then that is a guarantee of our resurrection. If we know that Christ is raised, then we have hope. We believe that he is the God who raises the dead. Now, there are people in our culture who will say, yeah, that was in the Bible because people were stupid then and they believed that kind of thing. No, they didn't. Go and read Acts 17 where Paul speaks to the the philosophers and the politicians and the leaders in Greece on Mars Hill and he talks to them about many things. But it's when he gets to the point of God has given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead that people get up and walk away. They say, don't be daft. People aren't raised from the dead. But some said, no, we want to hear more about this. And that's exactly the same reaction that we get today. Romans 4.17 says, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Now, the implications of all of this are absolutely phenomenal for us. One is simply this. If you really believe in a joyful resurrection, what do you have to fear from death? Maybe I will read a wee bit more from um, chapter 15. Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the perishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and you believe that that is a guarantee that he will raise his people from the dead, then when you are hit with the devastation of death, when you are hit with the devastation of a loved one dying, when you yourself are in that situation, you mourn and you weep and you grieve, but you do not mourn and weep and grieve as do others. Because you genuinely know, this is not a wishful thinking, you know that when they die in Christ, they will be raised in Christ. And you have that tremendous hope. It seems to me that almost every day I'm hearing of someone else who's got cancer, I'm hearing of someone else who's died, someone else who's who's reaching the end of their life. How do you cope with that as a non-believer? I really want to know that actually. How do you actually face up to that? How do you face up to the fact that you are mortal? You can just shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's the way of things. Really? That to me is like saying, 
the grey, I mean, the weather this morning, honestly, I, you should never complain. About, I know you shouldn't complain about the weather, and I know that all Christians should be thankful for whatever weather they get, but I am 100% certain we will not have this weather in heaven, 100% certain. And so I feel a little bit justified. You know, it, to me, if you have the, the attitude about death, well, it's just stuff that happens, it's basically like saying, everything's always going to be grey. Everything's depressing. And to me... What God is saying to us is, yes, of course there's grayness, but the sun is going to rise. There will be warmth. There will be, there, there will be brightness. And that surely is the case for us in terms of the gospel. What have you got? What have I got? I've got nothing, nothing other than the hope of Jesus Christ. And it's a sure and a certain hope. And that's why we don't give up telling people. It's not about persuading people to our philosophy. It's not about time for reflection so that you can think on the same wavelengths as the rest of us. No, it is just simply this, that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. He came into this world that those who live all their days under the shadow of death could be freed from that. He says we are presented in his presence. Uh, Going back to 2 Corinthians chapter Uh, For we know that he will raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Now, I love that, by the way, because what Paul, Paul's in a bit of a dispute with the Corinthians. And he doesn't do as sometimes you'll find some Christians do, um, basically saying, well, I'm going to be in heaven, but I don't know if you are. He says, look, we have to work together on earth because we are going to both be presented before Jesus. We're going to be presented with him. I think there's a very practical application there as well. Just think for yourself about that Christian who just really annoys you and who you are not speaking to and who, if you had your way, you wouldn't be too disappointed if you didn't meet them in heaven. You're going to. And you are going to stand before the throne of grace together. You must not, must not, in this life, disown people or cut people off who you are going to spend eternity with. I know it's tough. The easiest thing for us to do is to say, I don't like them. I don't like what they did. I'm just going to ignore them. I'm not going to be around them for too long. You are. That's the point. You're going to be around them for eternity. So start on this earth to try and get on with them and work out. That's, I think that's what Paul's saying. We're going to be presented together with you in his presence. I love the story of uh, Whitfield and Wesley. Now, you'll know that George Whitfield and John Wesley and Charles Wesley were uh, great people in uh, the 18th century who saw this massive revival in the United Kingdom and in uh, what was then the colonies in America. And uh, John Wesley was an Arminian. If you don't know what that is, it means someone who has very bad theology. Um, <laughs> and then... Uh, Whitfield was a Calvinist. And if you don't know what that means, it means someone who's got very good theology. And um, you need to investigate these things for yourself. But um, their, their followers, if you like, fought amongst one another and argued all the time and wrote leaflets and pamphlets and so on. And one day, George Whitfield was asked, very seriously, in a public meeting, do you think that Mr. Wesley will be in heaven? Oh, he said, do you think that you will see Mr. Wesley in heaven? 
And Whitfield stood up and said, no, I don't think I'll see him. I think he will be so much closer to the throne of the Lamb than me that I won't see him. Now, that was a very, very wise answer. I'm just saying simply, people who don't believe the gospel, who don't trust in Jesus, and who profess to be Christians, no, you have a completely different religion from them. You are not on the same planet. But people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, although you may not like them, although you may disagree with them, although you may find the quirks in their personality or their methodology or whatever, although you may have strong disagreement about major things in theology, they're still, if they belong to the Lord, they're still your brother and sister. Um, Don't attack the members of your own family. We believe in the resurrection. And then verse 15, he says, All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Now this is, to me, this is the the crux of what he's saying. He's saying, we have to keep telling people because we believe in a God who raises people from the dead. He raised Jesus. We believe that. He will raise us. And so we're going to keep telling people the good news. But he then goes on to say, All the bad stuff that's happening to us, all this trouble and difficulty and harassment and persecution, we believe that that is enabling people to come to know Jesus Christ, the grace that reaches more and more people. The grace that worked in Paul's life was enabling more and more people to see God and to overflow with thanksgiving. I think grace is often misunderstood and it's often misused. But here in this context, it's very straightforward what it means. It is simply God's deliverance of his people, not because they deserve it, but because he wants to, because he is gracious. Like in Psalm 116, the cords of death entangled me, but I was set free. Like in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians and verse 6, if we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffered. There's a sense in which being able to live in this world and face all the hassles and troubles and difficulties, that is God's grace And God's grace reaches out and works through us. I think also in this, there's that idea of grace being communicated. We have good news to give people. God's grace overflows. It's almost like unbelievable news. Now, sometimes we don't present it like that. And I'll tell you why. Because at the very beginning, what I said, that we've lost the wonder of grace and that we've lost faith in the power of God and we've turned to look at ourselves we've turned to look at the church we've lost the essence and the heart of it we are scared we become very defensive or very aggressive but we should be able to look upon everyone with grace we should be able to weep over the city of Dundee We should be able to think about our non-Christian friends and workmates and family and neighbors and plead and pray that God's grace 
would reach them. And we should be able to say we have good news for you. Now, there's a big argument in Scotland. uh, We always argue. uh, There's a big argument in Scotland theologically about a book called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. Uh, It was, again, in the 18th century. And what happened was that this book was published and the book basically said you can go to every person and say there's good news for you. And there were people in the church who said, no, no, you can't do that because how do you know if they're elect or not? What you should do is just go and tell them to repent. You can't say there is good news for you. Well, overall, the church in Scotland said, no, wait a minute. This is true. There is good news for you. And I think we need to really, really grasp that. Sometimes we're inhibited Because we ourselves are not applying the good news to ourselves. But sometimes we're inhibited because we're second-guessing God. But there is good news for you. Why? Because if you go back to verse 5 of chapter 4, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus is Lord. And again, I come back to this. I don't want children in school being taught there's this Lord and this Lord and this Lord and this Lord and this Lord. You take your pick. Whatever suits you, whatever's your culture, whatever you feel like, whichever one you want to choose. No, Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Mohammed is not Lord. Buddha is not Lord. Whatever you want, they're not Lord. Jesus is Lord exclusively. And I'm not ashamed to say that Christianity is exclusive like that precisely because it's true. Jesus is Lord. And because he's Lord, he can raise us from the dead. And we need to be much more positive in our, in our speaking. Of course people will become conscious of sin. And of course we're not going to turn away from what the Bible says about sin. I think as, as Christ is proclaimed as Lord, that will become more and more obvious. And of course that will result in persecution and trouble and rejection, as well as people accepting it. But we shouldn't go seek that. What we should be doing is trying to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord to absolutely everyone. That the grace of God reaches more and more people. And again, I want you just simply to think about that in terms of your own life. Is the grace of God in your life shriveling? Is the grace of God in your life reaching more and more people? Is it causing you to be more gracious to other people? Is it causing you to long for them? Is it causing you to lie awake at night and pray for those who you do not know? Is it causing you to think, do you know, I just wish there'd be a Christianity Explored course soon because I want to take a friend along to it. Is it causing you to say, you know what I would long for? I just want my family to come and hear about Jesus. I want to bring them to church. Or have you kind of folded your arms and whether under the guise of theology or not said, nah, don't think so. I I just can't see it. I, I just can't see how people will be interested. I can't see how people are going to come. This is good news. And it is not good for us to withhold good news. I think we need to remember it's good news. And look what it says. Our response to God's grace is thanksgiving. It's the grace of God reaches more and more people that it may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. See, when you see and understand God's grace, you don't say, oh, that's good, I'm forgiven, now I can go out and sin. I've got a clean slate, I can start all over again. And it can be all about me. What we do is we say, Lord, that that news is so good. 
It is so unbelievable that we go out and give thanks. We respond with repentance and a renewed obedience. And we long to see more conversions. One man writes this, Paul is envisaging that with the expansion of God's grace by means of the conversion of an ever-growing multitude of people, the volume of thanksgiving to God for the receipt of illumination would be greatly augmented and therefore God's greater glory would be achieved. God is glorified when people are saved. And we have to be so careful not to give up on salvation. And I use those words, and I know for some people they carry all kinds of negative connotations. But believe you me, being saved is the greatest thing that you can possibly have. I would rather be saved than be healed. It's so vital and so important. It's a bit, maybe, maybe this is a bit trite to, to put it this way, but going back to the, the cake and the baking, right? You have cakes, and you kind of have, there are cakes, and then there are cakes, like real mega wonderful cakes. They're a cake that you taste and you go, oh my goodness, that, that is to die for. That's the expression that we use in our hyperbolic way. And, and see, when you get a cake like that, what do you want to do? Well, apart from eat it, you, you want to tell them, taste my cake. This is amazing. Um, somebody here who shall remain nameless say that you have to come down to tea and cakes, which is in the center of town. They've got great cakes. Well, I was reluctant, but they have. Worth going to. They've got great cakes. When you taste something, you go, wow, that's just, that's just beautiful. That is gorgeous. You want to take people with you. Myself and Annabel have been away for the past week, and uh, I visited uh, a place where Edgar Allan Poe, I, I loved it, the way he, where he ate and wrote and so on. And, but it had fantastic food. So the first thing I did was I really wanted to take Annabel with me to share that food. Now, you see what I'm trying to say. When you in yourself experience the grace of God and you know the power of Jesus and you believe in Jesus, it is so good that you want to share it with other people. I think until you feel like that, you're going to really struggle communicating the good news. I think you're going to go out to evangelize people or to hit them over the head or to try and persuade them to be like you or to express your anger. But you need to see that God is good. It's not easy, but we tell people about the incredible news of Jesus. We trust in the Holy Spirit to grant faith, and we give thanks to the Father for all his work. Now, I want to leave it, but I don't want to leave it. For those of you who are not yet Christians, I'm just wondering a little bit what you think about all this, because we talk about evangelism, telling people the good news. Um, how, how do you think about all of this? I mean, you don't really want to be evangelized, do you? It just it sounds like being inoculated or something. It just sounds dreadful. But if you think about it in this way, do you want to hear the good news? Really incredible good news. How will you respond to it? Will you respond with mockery, with fear, with initial joy and then back off? Or will you just simply accept it, accept Christ and become part of this great crowd that the Bible says no one can number? Because I, I put it to you this way. What do you know and who do you trust? Ultimately, the only person to absolutely trust is Jesus Christ. And I ask you simply, why don't you come to faith in Christ? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Enable us.
to understand it and to apply it. We thank you for the great good news of the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is risen from the dead, and that his resurrection is our guarantee. Lord, some of us here are facing death. We're facing illness in ourselves or amongst loved ones. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have that true hope and certainty and surety in you. Some of us here don't know you. Oh God, have mercy on us and draw us to you. May we hear the good news and respond with, I believe. And Lord, all of us need to hear the good news again and again and again and grant that somehow you would use us to communicate and share it. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. We're going to finish by singing the song uh, by faith. Uh, We'll stand and sing and then please remain standing for the benediction. By faith we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design. As Paul says, we, with that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Let's stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.